0: morning. Uh, It is a a real thrill for us to have back today, Jimmy and Chrissy Kilpatrick. Uh, They, yep, so it's, well, let's let them finish talking. Okay, it's great to have back Jimmy and Chrissy Kilpatrick. They They were married here in this very sanctuary on March 9th, 2008. I went back, looked it up. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we're thrilled that they decided to stop by en route to Okinawa, you know, as you do. Uh, we're, there, is going to be stationed there for the next three years, uh, so we're thrilled to have you guys back with us and uh, with two more children than you left with. Uh, hopefully you'll also have two when you leave here, because as you can see, most of us have plenty already. Um, but uh, it's good to have him back with us. Today we are finishing up chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, this third installment of our Roman series, uh, and we have been in the last, uh, in the last several months, uh, eight or nine months, I guess, uh, working through this most difficult of passages. And I really, I'm sorry Ron's not here this morning, because I wanted to thank him for uh, doing an excellent job last week uh, of, of laying out what I think is the second best way to understand this very difficult passage. Um, and, and I mean that uh, with all affection and appreciation. Uh, as he mentioned, he, he gave something of a minority report. In a lot of ways, it's not really fair. Here I, I am week after week for however many weeks talking about this one perspective on chapters 9 through 11, and he gets a half hour to lay out an alternative. Uh, but uh, I thought he did a great job of it, and I really appreciated him bringing it. Uh, and, and I'll say a little bit more about that. But let's, let's open up to Romans chapter 11. We're here at the end. We'll start in verse 25. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. and In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are beloved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God now have received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may too now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that He may have mercy on them all. Now, on Easter we talked a little bit about these Old Testament quotes that Paul brings in, in verses 26 and 27, that the deliverer will come from Zion. But I left off, until this week, the other one that he was referencing, which is, from Jeremiah, when he says, "This is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins," and really, it is in light of that passage in Jeremiah chapter thirty-one. I'll invite you to turn back there. It is in light of that chap- that passage in Jeremiah thirty-one the, the reading that Ron offered, the, the dispensationalist or the eschatological fulfillment view, that that reading makes a lot of sense. Jeremiah in chapter 31 says, The time is coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This passage is hugely important. If you read, as you remember, when we were in in Hebrews, in chapters 8 through 10 of Hebrews, which kind of are, are like a counterpart to... Romans nine to eleven, Hebrews eight through ten, is sort of an extended meditation on the relationship between the old and new covenants. So what does it mean to be called by God to be His people, and what does it mean to be in covenant with Him? So here, Yahweh says, "I will forgive their wickedness; I will remember their sins no more." And this is what this is what Paul quotes in chapter eleven. But perhaps as important is what comes right after that, the verses after the ones that Paul quotes. This is what Yahweh says, starting in verse 35. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, Yahweh the God of angel armies is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares Yahweh, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what Yahweh says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares Yahweh. And so in light of these promises that God will not forsake Israel, that he will never allow the descendants of Israel to cease to be a nation before him, And in light of what Paul then says about Israel being beloved on account of the patriarchs and about God's gift and his call being irrevocable, many people, and this is the position that Ron was articulating last week, will say that when Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved, he's talking about a future time in the eschaton, in the last days, when after all of the Gentiles have come in, that Israel's partial hardening will be resolved. They have ex- experienced a partial hardening until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. That's one way you could read the, the uh, uh, particle in the Greek, and, uh, and it, it, it's perfectly fine in terms of a translation. To say what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about events happening, and he's talking about a, a, a chronological progression. Once the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And so many folks will read this as seeing, saying that this is the way that God is faithful to His promises to Israel. God is faithful to His promises to Israel, not to abandon them, not to leave them without descendants. By in the end saving all those who are of Israel and bringing them all in through Jesus, but bringing them all in. What that means, the implication of that, is that, frankly, your Jewish friends are good for now. Like, you don't really need to bother them. Because if at some point God is going to save all, Israel, then there's really nothing to worry about. There's no sort of fear of hellfire and damnation if all Israel's going to be saved. I mean, of course, we believe that life is in Christ, and so it would be good if you were to start that now, but you're going to get that eventually, so it's really not a problem. And, and you get very sophisticated and thoughtful workings out of this um, theologically, both among the dispensationalists, among Protestants. And also among traditional Roman Catholic theologians, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict, back when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, talked about this a number of times. And he, he talked about the idea that, that uh, the Old Covenant is, is sort of a, something that's going to continue to be effective for now. The time will come when that Old Covenant will no longer be relevant, but for now, it's good and it stays in place and it is nothing that ought to be messed with. And so we, re- we can read this passage that way as saying that, yes, at the end of days, all Israel will be saved, and so we don't need to be anxious about salvation between now and then for our Jewish friends. Here's my problem with that reading. I don't think it fits with the rest of Romans, because as we've been reading in Romans, we read Paul saying that Jew and Gentile alike are bound up under the power of sin. Jew and Gentile alike need to be rescued from its dominion. Jew and Gentile alike need to be saved through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile alike have peace. We now have peace with God, but it is through Jesus Christ. And I don't think this reading fits very well with the rest of Paul, because here in Romans and elsewhere, Paul talks about how salvation is by grace, not by works. It's not by anything that you do to mark yourself out as one of God's people, and it certainly isn't something that you inherit. It's not something that comes to you by virtue of your ethnicity. And I don't think it fits not only with the rest of Romans or the rest of Paul, but with the rest of the New Testament. Because if this is the message of the gospel, that Jews are free to treat Jesus as optional because later on they all get brought in, then the apostles we're doing some very strange things. Because as I read the book of Acts and as I read the letters, it seems like every time one of these guys runs across somebody, Jew or Gentile, they have a message to tell them about Jesus. At the end of, G- of, of Matthew's gospel, we have that scene, the Great Commission, where Jesus says to his followers, he says, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all I've commanded you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, some people read that and say, yes, when Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, he meant make disciples of the Gentiles, right? I'm going to commission you, a dozen Jewish guys, to go out and make disciples from among the Gentiles, and you're not supposed to bother your Jewish friends. If that's what happened, then they completely missed what Jesus was trying to say. Because what do we next see them doing when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power at the beginning of Acts? You remember this? The scene at Pentecost and everybody starts talking in these strange languages and people go, what's going on? And Peter stands up and he says, my fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully carefully. To what I say, this is what's going on here is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below. The sun will be turned to darkness, moon to blood, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you don't have to worry about that. Because you're already good. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, to God, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And he did that so that at this point you can completely ignore him until an eschatological fulfillment happens. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge... You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. It's funny that David would have said this, because, you know, David's Jewish, and David had the old covenant, so David didn't really need Jesus. And I'm just going to kind of mention this, because it's a great line, so that when you're out evangelizing your Gentile neighbors, you can mention this. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne who would be utterly irrelevant to his people until a time of eschatological fulfillment. And he goes on, and then the people heard this, and they're cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, these are fellow Jews, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Nothing. Don't worry about it. Go back to the synagogue, go back to the temple, do your sacrifices like you usually do. This Jesus thing is for them, it's for the Gentiles, and it's not for you. Now, unless you bought your Bible at the dollar store, that is not what this says. What happens here in Acts is the people are cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every last one of you, my Jewish brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far far off, with all whom the Lord our God will call. And this is what happens throughout Acts. This is what's reflected in the letters. That when the apostles go out and they proclaim the message... Of the gospel, usually the first people they're proclaiming it to is to their Jewish co-religionists, their fellow Jews. When Paul went to the synagogue to preach there first, it wasn't just because he was warming up before he went to preach to the Gentiles. He went there first. He said, I this is this is the, the, the gospel, this is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile. It's for everybody. And there's absolutely no indication whatsoever in Romans, in the rest of Paul, in the New Testament, that anybody here who is a follower of Jesus thinks that Jesus is optional for anybody, least of all his own people. Now, I appreciate this reading because it is a sincere effort to hold together several disparate pieces of Scripture. It really is an effort to try to say, okay, Paul says all Israel will be saved, and he's quoting this passage where Jeremiah says that only if the heavens disappear will will Israel cease to be a nation before me. That doesn't mean you're supposed to try to figure out, okay, like with quantum physics, is something going to happen sometime? No, that's poetry. God's saying it's not going to happen. It's like when Jesus says, I tell you, not until heaven and earth pass away will one jot or tittle of this law pass away, i.e., it's not going to happen. And I, I appreciate that because other people, when they read this, if they don't like it, they frankly just blow it off. They pick which parts of Scripture they want to believe and which parts they don't. But as much as it can work as, a, as a, an effort to, to hold together some disparate pieces of Scripture, it just doesn't seem to dance in time with the rest of what we find in Romans and Paul in the rest of the New Testament. None of the early church fathers gave any indication that they saw this to be the case, that you understand the gospel to be for Gentiles and not for Jews. Now, unfortunately, there were some who believed that because uh, the Jews of Jesus' day rejected him, that that meant that the nation of Israel was utterly cut off, that the Jews could never have a chance to come in. And and that was an error that was was quickly corrected because certainly, Paul says, I mean, he's like, look, at the beginning of chapter 11, did God reject his people? Hey, I'm a Jew. So obviously he didn't reject all of us. No, God absolutely didn't reject his people. It's a question of how will this deliverance that he's promised come? But we still have that tension. Even if we can look at this other reading and say, good effort but I don't think that works we do have Paul saying that all Israel will be saved we do have Paul saying that God's gift and his calling are irrevocable We have Jeremiah saying never will Israel cease to be a nation before me and as I was thinking about this puzzle I was drawn to a passage in 1 Peter Flip ahead with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's past Hebrews and then James, and you get to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, of course, was the head of Jesus' apostles. As you come to him, starting in verse 4, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Who's that? Good. Okay. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Paul quotes that passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 28 and 29, he actually goes back to that time and time again in Romans 9 to 11. He quotes this exact passage at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, verse 33, as it's written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He says that in context of saying, what are we going to say, that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but That Israel, who pursued a righteousness of Torah, hasn't attained it? Well, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And Peter goes on to say, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. Who's the stone? Okay. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is, after all, what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. Who's he talking to? Everyone, but everyone in the what? Everyone in the church. Peter is addressing this to the church, right? At the beginning he says to God's elect strangers in the world. He sends, you know, out to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This church that Peter's writing to is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. This is a church that once was not a people, he says, but now you are a people. And this idea of being a, a chosen pe- priesthood, a, a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, where does that come from? Well, that comes from Torah. Go back to Exodus. In chapter 19, this is right when Moses has led the people to Mount Sinai. He's about to go up and receive... The law, Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, Hey Moses, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. I mean the whole earth is mine, I'm God after all, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And these are the words you to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words Yahweh had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together, We will do everything Yahweh has said. So Moses brought that answer back to Yahweh. What Moses said on God's behalf to the nation of Israel freshly liberated from slavery, is exactly the thing that Peter is saying to whom? To the church. Now, there's some hints throughout what we know as the Old Testament that God might be opening up this program of being part of His people beyond just those who are ethnically his people. You remember in that story of the Exodus that the Israelites left Egypt, not only themselves, but they had a motley crew of hangers on as well, people who were attracted to the power of the God of Israel and to the integrity of his people. We see elsewhere in the stories of the Old Testament people who are fascinated by God's people and are drawn to them see that in the story of Ruth. We see in the time of Jesus, you had people who were known as God-fearers. These were Gentiles who would hang around the temple courts, who wanted to honor the one true God of Israel, but they were not yet prepared to do what was involved in actually becoming part of his people, partly because there was some suspicion of people who wanted to do that and partly because that involved circumcision. But we get little hints here and there, like here in Isaiah, at the very end of chapter 66 of Isaiah, God says, I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I'll send a sign among them. I'll send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and the Lydians, the good archers, to Tubal and to Greece all the distant islands that haven't even heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they'll bring all your brothers from all the nations. That is, all the scattered Jewish people in the diaspora. I'm going to bring them all to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to Yahweh and horses, chariots, wagons, mules, and camels, says Yahweh. They'll bring them just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of Yahweh in ceremonial clean vessels, and I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says Yahweh. So I'm bringing in not only those from these scattered tribes, but I'm sending, I'm bringing in those among the nations, and He's selecting some of them to be priests and Levites. used to be to be a priest or a Levite, you had to be born into the right Jewish tribe. Now, Paul says, or Isaiah says, God is opening it up. So what I think we have here at the end of chapter 11 in Romans, and really I think this is the thrust of the first 11 chapters of the book, and especially 9 to 11, Paul is telling a story of God redefining Israel not by ethnicity or culture not by being born to the right family or by doing things that are going to mark you out from other people as part of a certain group but he's redefining Israel according to function according to mission according to what they're there for you'll remember as Paul said beginning of chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are literal genetic descendants are Israel. Just being his descendant doesn't make you Abraham's child. What Paul's talking about here is a story of God calling a people that is now not simply defined by ethnicity or culture, was defined by the role of being his people, being his ambassador, being his agents of reconciliation. And so Paul is saying that God being faithful to his promises to Israel means that God is being faithful to call a people to be his people to empower them to be his people, to do his work in the world where God has placed them. And you can get really wrapped up in whether that means that Paul thinks that Israel is now now become the church or that the church is taking the place of Israel. And I can assure you that many, many trees have given their lives for all the books that have been written working through these questions but what I do think is that Paul is saying, yes, God has been faithful to his promises, not maybe in the way you would have expected, but God has been faithful. Once again, he is calling a people to be his people, to be his agents of reconciliation to a hurting world. And so the proper response to this is the one Paul gives us at the end of chapter 11. Proper response to this is worship. Of oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. I mean, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his conciliary? who's ever given to God that God owes him something from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and and I'm not going to go back to them but here Paul's referencing sort of two, two of the most famous I'm God and you're not passages in the Old Testament Isaiah 40 and then the end of Job where after all this disputation God steps in and he kind of cuts off the microphone he says alright here's the deal there's two name tags there's the one that says God there's the one that says not God you get the one that says not God any questions? alright I'm going to go riff for another three chapters about how I made all sorts of awesome things in the world and how you ought to fear my power but here's the idea there's God and there's not God as long as you get that straight we're going to be fine And yes, the proper conclusion to all of our theological inquiry, the proper conclusion to our questions that we ask, the proper conclusion to our curiosity, the proper conclusion to our efforts to penetrate the great mysteries of the one true God. All these should end for us in worship depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments as paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been able to give him advice? Who's ever given something to God that God owes him something? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever Amen